So as we dive into John chapter 12 this morning, the last half of that, uh, I, I want to start by just making a statement and an observation. And here, here's a statement of, of something I've learned about myself that I think is probably true of, of you as well. Um, I prefer to do things that are meaningful. Uh, one of the things that, that drives me crazy is doing meaningless tasks. So one of the most frustrating things uh, in, in all of life for me is like when I have a computer glitch and I lose work that I've already done, if you've ever had that happen, it's like a soul crushing thing. I remember in college, I worked feverishly on a paper, probably later than I should have been working on it. I waited to the last minute, of course. And it was one of those moments where you think uh, something that will never happen will, and my dorm got hit by lightning and it literally fried my desktop computer. And so I had this whole paper that I typed, I'd, I'd saved it in a couple different uh, file locations on the computer thinking it'll be fine. And, and lo and behold, lightning strikes and it's gone. And, and the frustrating thing is all that work that I had done was, was now meaningless. It, it just didn't matter suddenly. And, and now in, in my adult life, there, there's two just household chores that I, I feel like are meaningless. And this first one, you're probably going to judge me a little bit because this is revealing about who I am, but just withhold your judgment for a little bit. Uh, I just don't find much meaning in making the bed in the morning. And, and I know there's some who say, you know what? It's a great way to start the day. That's your first victory to make the bed. And the way that I see it, I'm just going to get in the bed again at night and just undo all that work that I did. So why not just plan ahead and not make the bed in the morning? And then I'm all ready for the evening, right? It just it, There's no, in my mind, purpose or significance to that. It seemingly doesn't matter. Now, the other household chore that I just feel like is, is, is meaningless is raking the yard. I just feel like every year I'm going to rake it and the next year the leaves are back. It doesn't really do much. Maybe it saves my grass from dying a little bit. But especially in South Dakota where the wind is regularly 20 to 30 miles per hour, I just think, why am I raking? All these leaves can be my neighbor's problem tomorrow if I just wait long enough, right? They'll just blow away. And it just feels like you're engaged in something that just ultimately has no purpose or, or significance. And, and it's frustrating because when we do something or are engaged in something that doesn't feel like it has meaning, it just feels purposeless as if it doesn't matter. It feels maybe as if we're just wasting our time. And so there's this writer in the Bible in Ecclesiastes, it's uh, the writer is Solomon. And he has this sort of existential moment where he's wrestling with meaning and purpose and significance. And he makes what I think is a rather uh, bold questioning statement. He, he says this, this is Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two. And, and this is one of the wisest men who ever lived. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And, and I just think this is powerful because this is one of the most wise people in all the world. What he's doing in Ecclesiastes one is he's trying to bring this question to the forefront to say, what is the meaning and purpose and significance of life? And maybe you've had a moment or a season where you've wanted to throw up your hands and just say, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Uh, for me, I, I maybe felt this way as a parent, uh, trying to work full time and, and school my kids at home and balance all these things. There were moments where I'm like trying to push my kids to learn at home and they're not motivated and I'm not motivated. I just wanted to throw up my hands and be like, this is meaningless, right? In, in a small way that, that maybe gets at what Solomon was talking about, that these moments that just feel like what is going on? Now, for others of us, this is a broader question that we've wrestled with, is what is the meaning? What is the purpose? What is the significance of life that we're called to? 
And as we walk through John chapter 12, the last half of this passage today, I I want us to wrestle with that question. What are you living for? Who are you living for? Where do you find ultimate meaning and purpose and significance in life? And so last week when Pastor Steve introduced us to John chapter 12, he asked us this question that I thought was, was really, really important. He said, does the word full describe your walk with God? When you describe your spiritual journey, when you describe your relationship with Jesus Christ, is it one that you would say, yes, that is a full and vibrant walk? And if you remember John chapter 10, it talks about that the reason that Jesus came was to give us life and to give it to the fullest. And part of what I want us to wrestle with is this idea that the fullness of life is found in Jesus. Then Pastor Steve last week went on to make the statement. He said, you are called to embrace a revolutionary lifestyle in Jesus Christ. And and I, I want you to just stop this morning and I want you to ask this question. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God has called you not to just an ordinary life, not to a meaningless existence where you're just trying to pass the time? Do you fundamentally believe that God has called you to a revolutionary way of living in Jesus? That he's called us to be a new kind of people redeemed in Jesus Christ? And if you do believe that, what does that tangibly and fundamentally mean for how you live on a day-to-day basis? So um, I I think there's a couple questions that uh, I have, maybe you have, that we can wrestle with together. I think number one is what does a revolutionary lifestyle look like in Christ? How do we live that? How do we begin to step into that? And, And one broad level is what does a revolutionary lifestyle mean? And and I think in a broad way, living a revolutionary lifestyle is this. A revolutionary way of living means living in a way that goes against the the grain of how things are, right? When, When somebody is part of a revolution, part of what happens is society and culture is headed in a direction. And when there's a revolution, somebody rebels against the way things are and pushes back and they begin to go against the grain of things. And so part of what I want us to recognize is that a revolutionary lifestyle in Jesus is going against the grain of of how maybe culture and society and everyone around us would say, this is what life is and looks like. And what I want us to take from that is that Jesus calls us to a gospel way of living, that to be redeemed and holy people is to live a new life in a new direction in a way that's God honoring and God pleasing. Now, I, I, th- I think part of what I wrestle with too is when I hear the language of we've got to live in, in a revolutionary way, part of me goes, man, that, that sounds on one level maybe unattainable or unachievable. It's this question for me of, of how do I begin to step into that? And part of what I want to help us understand this morning is that a revolutionary lifestyle is not necessarily dramatic right? It doesn't mean we have to be someone of, of great historical greatness. Because I think sometimes what we do is we attribute greatness to achievement rather than uh, to consistently following and living in the truth of who God has called us to be. And so what I want us to recognize today is that a revolutionary way of living is not so much about a big dramatic impact on history as much as it is a day-to-day living in faithful obedience to the people that God has called us to be. And and so I think in some ways, this might be captured in this quote by Mother Teresa. She said it this way. She said, not all of us can do great things, right? Not all of us are going to be a Shakespeare. Not all of us are going to be a world leader. Not all of us are going to rock the foundations of history, right? I'm okay with that. But she says this, and I think this is profound. She says, but we can do small things with great love. And, and I think when Jesus calls us to a revolutionary way of living, part of what he's calling us to is to recognize that meaning and purpose and significance and fulfillment are found ultimately in him. And when we live and walk with him obediently, 
There's this opportunity to do simple, ordinary, everyday things with great love in a way that bears witness to the truth of who Jesus is in a way that allows us to live in a revolutionary way. So that's what I want to unpack for us this morning as we look at John chapter 12. How do we begin to step into this revolutionary way of living? So we begin John chapter 12, verse 28. There we, re- we read this. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say that the son of man will be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus glory and he spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me would stay in darkness. If anyone hears my word, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the father has told me to say. In a lot of ways, this last half of John chapter 12, um, Jesus begins to reveal the full extent of, of his ministry and ultimately where it's headed. If you notice at the beginning of that passage that I read, Jesus essentially predicts his death. He tells us in verse 30, he said, uh, Jesus said to them, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto me. And John tells us that he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So what does this mean? When Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all men unto me. He's talking about the reality that he is going to be lifted up on a cross. And so Jesus is trying to communicate to the people, listen, I'm going to be uh, lifted up on this cross. I'm going to be put to death in a horrific and gruesome way. But the clue that this gives us to the revolutionary way of God in the world is this idea that God often works in ways that are beyond our ability to understand. And so one of the first things that I want us to grasp and take hold of is this idea that the cross is an example of the way God works in a revolutionary way. It's an example of how God often works in ways that defy our understanding. 
Because if, if you are a Jewish person in the first century and you hear your Messiah claim that he's going to be put to death on a cross, you're going, no way, this doesn't make any sense. And, and in fact, did you catch the, the people? They, they push back on him. And in verse 34, the crowd says, well, well, how can this be? They said, we've heard from the law. We've heard that Moses told us that the Messiah will be here forever. So how, how in the world can you be put to death on the cross? They say, who is this son of man? Who is this person you're talking about? No, Jesus has already told the crowd that it's himself, that he's the one who's going to die on the cross. But the people of Israel cannot imagine a world in which God demonstrates his superiority and his victory. They cannot imagine a way in which the Messiah can bring about his victory by something like the cross. Elsewhere, scripture says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. The idea of being crucified was a shameful, uh, cursed way to die. I mean, think about this. To die on a cross was to be stripped naked, was to be beaten, was to be publicly humiliated and shamed. I mean, how in the world can God even begin to bring about his victory through something like that? And for the people of Israel, they're wrestling with that very idea. But God is working and moving in a revolutionary way. And so what I want us to do is pause right here and just look at what the cross means for us. Because I, I think in a lot of ways, we've become maybe numb to the significance of the cross. We see the cross on a steeple. We see the cross on a necklace. And, and those are good things. But my concern sometimes is that it becomes ordinary. But when you look at the cross, you are looking at an instrument of torture. But you're also looking at the way in which God brought his victory in the world. I, I love the way that Paul says this in uh, Colossians chapter 2. When, when Paul is writing about what Jesus did for us, he says this. He says, and he, he being Jesus, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Think about that. When we rebelled against God, when we sinned against him, there was a charge of, of, of legal charges, a, a list of things that we've done wrong that, that stands against us, that's opposed to us. I mean, just imagine if somebody stood up in a room and read out loud all the things that you did wrong. Right? And Paul says, this, this charge of our indebtedness, the, the wages that our sin brings, what we owe back to God, he says, that stands against us and condemned us. He says, he, Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Right? Jesus dies the death that was meant for us. Sin brings death, but Jesus takes that for us. He nails it to the cross, and it says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Look at this, triumphing over them by the cross. And, and, and this is mind-boggling to me, that when it looks like God has been defeated, when the Son of God is nailed to the cross, that is not God being defeated. That is God disarming the powers and authorities of this world. I mean, think about it. The, the empire of Rome was one of the most powerful military and political forces of the world in that day. They had, had conquered much of the known world. And this mighty empire where the Caesar is at top and everyone views the Caesar as he, he's the king. And, and in the eyes of some, the Caesar was, was even godlike. He had this sort of mythical divinity about him or so the people thought. And the empire of Rome brings all of their might and power down in judgment on Jesus. A lowly carpenter from Nazareth and they put him to death on a cross. And, and if it stopped there, Sure, it would look like a defeat. 
But the reality is, and this is what we celebrated on Easter just a few weeks ago, is that three days later, Jesus rose again. And what we find is that the most powerful military and political force of the world could not conquer Jesus. They put him to death in the most horrific way they could imagine. And Jesus rose again, conquering them, disarming them. And I love this. It said he made a public spectacle of them. Jesus utterly embarrassed the power of Rome on the cross and through his resurrection. And and think about this, 2,000 years later, the empire of Rome is no more, but the kingdom of God still moves forward. And what this demonstrates to us is that the revolutionary way that God world works often defies our ability to make sense of. And I love that, that God is bigger than I can even imagine. And so when we look at the cross, we see that through the cross, God brings glory to himself. When Jesus talks about being lifted up, there's two components to that. One, he's going to be physically lifted up, but Jesus also says this is a way that he's going to bring glory to himself and draw people to a place of salvation. And through, so through the most unlikely way, death on a cross, Jesus brings glory to himself and he brings glory to the Father. As Colossians 2 says, through the cross, Jesus brings redemption for us and he brings forgiveness of sins as he takes on himself the penalty and the consequences of our sin. But also as Colossians says, he defeats the powers and the authorities. And so even though it defies maybe our ability to imagine that through something as horrific as the cross that God can work, we see that God brings glory to himself, salvation and redemption for us, and he defeats evil and sin. And again, I want you to come back to this idea that God can work in ways that are beyond our ability to understand. And I think one of the beautiful things is even in that moment where all seems lost, where Jesus is dying on the cross, that God is still in control and he is still unfolding his plan and purpose and resurrection and redemption are coming. And I think this idea of the cross, it lays this framework for understanding this revolutionary way that God has called us to live. The cross demonstrates that God can work in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. But it doesn't stop there. As John talks about the cross, he moves on from Jesus predicting his death. And really this next section is an invitation of Jesus to join him in that revolutionary way of living. Notice what Jesus says in verse 35 and 36. It says, then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. He says this, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And do you notice what Jesus warns them? He says, listen, the light is just going to be with you a little while longer. He's talking about his own physical presence. And Jesus is telling him why I'm in front of you. Jesus says, follow me. And there's an urgency here. In fact, uh, later on in the passage, Jesus will literally, in verse 44, says, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me also believes in the Father. So there's this moment where Jesus is before this crowd and he's literally raising his voice, calling out, put your faith, put your trust in me. And so not only has Jesus predicted his his death on the cross and ultimately predicted his victory, but then Jesus invites the people around him to put their trust in him. There's an invitation to join Jesus in this revolutionary way of living and being in the world. And Jesus warns them, he says, listen, apart from me, you are navigating life in the dark. And so I think for a lot of people, they're asking that question, where do we find meaning and purpose and significance of life? What does it all come down to? In church, I I fully and fundamentally believe that to try to do life apart from Jesus is to find yourself lost and wandering around in the dark, trying to find meaning and purpose and significance, trying to find the things that matter. And there's Jesus calling out to the masses, come to me, he says. 
As he says in the gospel of Matthew, take my yoke upon me, uh, upon you, learn from me for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In John chapter 10, there's Jesus saying, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And really, I think that's part of the crux of this whole passage in John chapter 12 is how will we respond to the invitation of Jesus to join with him in this revolutionary way of being? Now, I think part of what's challenging in this is that sometimes we're so resistant to God's direction and God's working that we don't see when he's at work right in front of us. So the people of Israel, you already saw in verse 34, how they have trouble understanding how, how the Messiah can bring victory through the cross. But then in, in verse 37, John says this, said, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, Lord, who has believed our message or who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what John is doing there says, listen, the prophet Isaiah talked about this idea. He said, who's believed the word of God? Who's believed when he talks about the arm of the Lord, he means the work of God that we see tangibly in our midst. And he says, the people of Israel, they are blind to this idea that Jesus is right in front of them, calling him to, to find life in, in, in their faith in him. And I think for some of us, we're resistant to follow Jesus because we see the way that he calls us to live in scripture. We see this idea that Jesus calls us to go all in, to lay down our life, to surrender fully to him. And part of the question we're asking is, can I really trust you, Jesus? Is, is the meaning and purpose and significance of life, is, is, is it really found in you? Because sometimes I, I want to do life my own way. I want to do it in my own agenda. I want to do it in a way that makes sense to me. But when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to lay down our agenda, to lay down our purpose for our own life and to take up his agenda for us, to take up his will for us. And, and the people of Israel, they had this idea of how the Messiah was going to work. And when Jesus starts to blow apart their conceptions of who he is and how he's going to work, they trouble to come, they, they, they wrestle in coming to terms with that. And I think sometimes we struggle to do the same thing, to respond in obedience when Jesus calls us. And sadly, I think sometimes what happens when we're resistant to the word and to the work of God is that sometimes I think God has to lead us through a season of brokenness or disappointment. God has to maybe allow us to try to do things in our own strength and experience the emptiness of that way. I mean, notice what John says in verse 40. Again, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah and he says this. He says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And if they could, I would heal them. Now, he, he's not saying that there's no hope for them. I think what John is drawing our attention to here is that the people of Israel are so blind and so resistant to the word and to the work of God that there's this moment where God says, okay, I'm gonna let you try it. And it's gonna lead to a place of, of heartache for them. And I love how Isaiah says, if they would turn to me, I would bring healing. I would bring redemption. And sometimes we're so stubborn and so resistant and we're so just bullheaded and trying to do things our own way that I think God allows us the freedom to do that. And what we run headlong into is the meaninglessness of life apart from him because we are designed and created to be in relationship with him, with the God of all the universe. And often there's this moment then of diving headlong into doing life my own way, where I come to the end of myself, the end of my ability, the end of my strength. And it's in those moments where of, of heartache, of disappointment, of brokenness that brings humility, that allows us to respond to God's grace, to his call in our life. And, and part of the beauty of how John writes here is he's trying to warn us not to be blind. What I think in, in the brilliance of how John's right, and, uh, John writes is he calls attention to the blindness of the people of Israel. 
If you remember back uh, last week when Pastor Steve talked about the first part of, of John chapter 12, in verse 20, it says this. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip and they said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Now, it's easy to read right over that, but I want you to imagine this from a Jewish perspective, right? These are the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they're there. And now suddenly these Greeks show up and in the mind of the Jewish people, the Greek people are Gentiles, they're pagans, right? They're not the chosen people. And suddenly these Greeks show up and they say, we would like to see Jesus. Now the problem is, is that the people of Israel, they don't have that same desire. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 36, it says, when Jesus had finished speaking, he left and he hid himself from them. Right? And John is trying to teach us something. He's saying, listen, these Greek people who have come uh, to find me, they want to see me. They're searching me out. But the people of Israel, I'm I'm hidden from them. They're resistant to my work. They don't see. And over and over again, Jesus is trying to demonstrate and John is trying to show their spiritual blindness. And church, I, I hope this morning that we pay attention to the call of Jesus to put our faith and our trust in him, to answer the invitation to step into that revolutionary way of living and being in the world, to step out of the darkness into light. So let me recap. On the one hand, the cross is a demonstration of the revolutionary way that God can work in the world, even in unlikely circumstances. And then Jesus invites us to respond to that invitation. But, but I think here's the question. In responding to that invitation to step into a revolutionary way of living in the world, what does that look like? And what does that mean tangibly? Because in Jesus' invitation, he says this. He says, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. So, so what does it mean to become children of the light? Let me, let me read this to you from Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this. It says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. That's why it says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the world's, what the Lord's will is. So here's this question, and I think Paul fleshes this out for us. What does a revolutionary way of living and being in the world, what does that look like? What does it mean fundamentally? I I think what we take from John chapter 12 is that it begins with belief in Jesus. Over and over again in that passage, Jesus invites us to step into this place of believing in him. If you want to do an interesting uh, project this week, read uh, John chapter 12, 28 through 50, and just count how many times the word believe shows up. Right? If you read it, it's, it's numerous times that Jesus uses this word belief. And in verse 44, he cries out, believe in me, because to believe in me is also to believe in the Father. And what I want us to recognize this morning is that it begins with belief. And belief is not just an intellectual saying, yeah, I think intellectually I see what Jesus is saying. No, belief is trusting the truth of Jesus enough to take action in our life. It's to say, Jesus, I'm going to put the weight of my life into your hands. I'm going to live how you call me to live. I'm going to fundamentally change how I do life and head in a new gospel-oriented direction. And so to believe in Jesus is to obediently follow him. It's to take new action in a new gospel-oriented direction. Now, Paul again fleshes out for us what this life in Jesus looks like. 
in Ephesians chapter five. And notice this, he says, for you were once darkness. And you might remember this. We talked about this in John chapter eight. That's who you used to be, right? And Jesus says this. He says, when you walk in the light, you become children of the light. And, and, and Paul picks up on that language in Ephesians chapter five. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. This is who you are. You're new people. He says, now live as children of the light. In other words, live into that new identity. And what's so fascinating is in verse 11, Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And, and remember what Jesus told us in John chapter 12. He says, apart from me, you are walking in darkness. And I think there's a number of people who are looking for meaning and purpose and significance in life, but they are lost in darkness. And when we live in a way that's contrary to how God has called us to live, honestly, church, it's fruitless. It does not lead to the fullness of life that Jesus has called us to in himself. And so again, as, as Paul fleshes this out, I think there's significant things that we see on a tangible level about what it is to live in this revolutionary way. Number one, notice that Paul says this. He says, find out what pleases the Lord. I love this. It's to live in such a way to say, God, how can I bring glory to you? God, how can I honor you? And, and I want to make this tangible for us. I think to begin to live in a revolutionary way is to open up every facet of your life with this question of saying, God, what does it look like to please you in this arena of my life? So maybe it's sitting down and saying, God, what does it look like to be pleasing to you in how I do my married life? God, what does it look like to be pleasing to you in how I do friendships or relationships? God, what does it look like to be pleasing to you in the way that I engage in my work? And I think so much, we, we just get lost in the flow of life and we, we just get lost in the routine and rhythm that we never stop. Take a moment and say, God, what does it look like to, to engage in this facet of life in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you? And I think this begins to, to chart our life in a new trajectory, in a way that's revolutionary, in a way that the people around us go, there's something different about the way that you do life. Then Paul says this, he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. He says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And so I just, church, what, was it, what would it look like for us to say, how can we make the most of every opportunity that's in front of us? What would it look like to say, you know what, these the circumstances, this time, this season is not ideal, but to look at it and say, God, is there something that you want to do in me in a spiritual sense? God, is there something that you want to form and shape in me? Is there some action that you want to take through me in the life of another person? Is there a way that you want me to serve someone else in a faithful way during this season? And finally, Paul comes down to this place where he just says, uh, don't be foolish, he says, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I think sometimes when we talk about God's will, we get so focused on like, what's God's specific will for this decision that I, I'm going to make? And, and that's a, an okay question to ask. But I think Paul is thinking more broadly here when he says, but understand what the Lord's will is. This is in the context of, of Ephesians chapter five and Ephesians chapter five, verse one begins with Paul saying, uh, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love. He says, you want to understand what the Lord's will is. He says, it's to live life in such a way that you are oriented outwardly in love towards other people. It's to live with a new purpose and a new agenda that is God's purpose and God's plan and God's agenda. It is, is to live a life aligned with the gospel, good news of who Jesus is and the redemption and the freedom from sin that he's come to bring. And so when God, or when Paul says, understand what the Lord's will is, he's saying, realign your life with how God has called us to live as his redeemed people who imitate his life of love. But when Paul says, be imitators of God, he's not just saying that we try hard to be like Jesus is. No, it's deeper than that. For Paul, there's this whole idea of transformation that in Christ, 
in our relationship with him, that we are being transformed and redeemed to more and more reflect from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ to actually reflect a heart of love. So let me, uh, let me flesh out for you what this has looked like for me personally. Um, I have mentioned this before, but just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm immune from uh, the pressures and the challenges of the last couple months. Um, I had lunch with a friend today and he said, you know, the last three months have been the longest four years of my life. And, and I kind of laughed. I thought, yeah, that, that resonates with me on a soul level. The last three months have felt like four years. And there's been a lot of pressures. There's been a lot of challenges. There's been moments of anxiety and moments of depression. And so my process in that has kind of looked like this. It started out and it said, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to try to survive. I, I need to find new rhythms. I need to just figure out a new pace. And the thing I've learned about survival is that when I'm just trying to survive, everything collapses in on myself. I'm just trying to make it through another day. And then as things went on and, and sort of leveled out into whatever normal looks like in a pandemic, it was, okay, how do I move beyond surviving to thriving? Right. And it's, I, I don't want to just make it through. Like I want this to be a season of growth. And I want this to be a season where I'm really rising to the occasion. Um, honestly, I can't say that I know that that ever happened to me in the season. I feel like in some ways I'm still in survival mode going, okay, let me just make it through till we get to the new normal. And so what I found myself praying in this process was, okay, God, give me perseverance. Help me to push through. And honestly, this last week, as I was um, reading through a devotional, God said, I, I think you've been praying for the wrong thing. Rather than praying for perseverance, God said, I want you to just begin to pray for a heart and a spirit of love. Because for me, as I thought about surviving or thriving, both of these were centered around me, were centered around how am I doing? How am I making it through? But love begins to turn one's life outward on itself. And so I read this quote by St. Augustine that I thought was uh, really helpful for me. And he's actually uh, commentating on the gospel of John here. He says, he, God has appointed that we should bring forth fruit, right? Your life is to matter. It's to have meaning, purpose, and significance. Your life is to bring forth fruit. It's to have impact on the life of another. He says, that impact is found that in that we should love one another. But he says that fruit of love is a fruit that we cannot have apart from God. Just as branches of a tree can do nothing apart from the vine. So uh, St. Augustine is saying, be connected to life in God, live into him, abide in him. And as you do, your life begins to bear fruit that people begin to experience the love of God through you as we faithfully live out that love. And then this is, this is what struck me. Augustine said that, says it this way. He says, who can be long enduring through persevering continually in good? And, and I felt like that was the question I was asking. How can I persevere in loving my family well? How can I persevere in doing ministry well? And he answers that question this, this way. He says, who can be long enduring through persevering continually in good? And he says this, except through fervent love. And I realized this week that for me, the root of, of perseverance is really love. As God reorients my heart in love for other people, I push through not out of duty, not out of, it's something I have to do. That even as I feel overwhelmed and even as I feel like, I don't know what the way forward looks like in all of this. It was a moment to come back and say, God, help me to abide in you, to be rooted in your love. And God, would you form a heart of love in me that allows me to love others well? And I, I think this is the kind of revolutionary way of living that Jesus is calling us into to have a life that bears the gospel fruit that he's calling us to. And I think the challenge in this sometimes is, 
to let go of our own sin and brokenness and to step fully into this life that Jesus has called us to. I think sometimes it's easier uh, to want to just stay in a place of brokenness because it's what's familiar, it's what we know. But Jesus is calling us out of a life of brokenness to let go of that sin, to leave it behind, to step into life in him. And I think sometimes the challenge in that is uh, what we see in verses 42 and 43. Some of the leaders among the people of Israel, they put their faith in Jesus, but it says they were afraid to own it. They were afraid to openly acknowledge it because they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And listen, I think for some of us, we are hesitant to, to throw our lives into the revolutionary way of living that Jesus calls us to because we're going, yeah, but what are other people going to think about me? What is my family going to think? What are my friends going to think? What are, and I don't want to be the holy roller person at work that everyone thinks, oh, like there's that, you know, crazy religious Jesus person. And some of us were so held bound by wanting others to think well of us that we're hesitant to throw our lives wholeheartedly into this. But I pray today that we would each have the grace of Jesus to step courageously into this life to answer the call to revolutionary living. And so I think here's the key reflection that I want you to take this week is how will you respond to Jesus' invitation? When Jesus, as he says in verse 44, Jesus cries out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. He's crying out to the people, believe in me. Will you, by the grace of God and with the, the infilling power of his spirit, we submit and surrender your will, your plan, your purpose, and your agenda to step into this new way of living? So here's what I want to challenge you with in, in two ways of response. The first uh, is just a reflection question. What in your life needs to be exposed to the light of Jesus through repentance? And what I mean by this is what are some places where you just need to surrender things to God? You just need to let go of, of places of sin, places where you've been resistant uh, to, to hand it over to God. What does that look like in your life? And in a moment of repentance, do you need to just turn that over and say, Jesus, I submit and surrender my five-year plan to you. I surrender my finances to you. I surrender my marriage to you. I surrender whatever it is. Can you, can you turn that over to him? I, I love the way Paul says it again in Ephesians. He says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and what becomes visible can be redeemed and made whole and made well. The second way I think we can respond is this. What simple revolutionary gospel action can you take this week? And as Mother Teresa said earlier that I quoted at the beginning, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And so maybe you're a Christ follower. You're saying, okay, I've given my life over to this revolutionary way of Jesus. But maybe we've, we've fallen back and, okay, I'm just going to survive this season. But I pray as a body that we can continue to turn outward in love for others and answer that question well. What simple revolutionary gospel act of love can you give your life to this week that bears witness to the redemptive purposes of God? That's my prayer for us as a body this week. And may we be a revolutionary gospel people.